when we talk about the connections between mental health and how it impacts disparities, specifically in communities of color, we know that many individuals from diverse ethnic and racial backgrounds that oftentimes they are less likely to seek out mental health services. Part of that may be due to stigma in those communities, but it also might be a function of inadequate access to services. Hello and welcome to the BBXX podcast, Let's Get Intimate. I'm your host, Sasha Laurie, and we're here to challenge the way our culture has conditioned us to talk and think about sexuality, intimacy, and healthy relationships. To question everything, to embark on a journey of self-understanding, and to begin to rewire some of the backwards thinking that we've absorbed from the subconscious influences that have shaped us all. Our hope for you, and for myself, and for all of us here at BBXX, who are on this journey with you every day, is that through a better understanding of our own identity, of who we are, and why we are that way, we can form deeper connections with other people and live healthier, more fulfilling relationships as a result. Join us as we change the conversation and the culture surrounding intimacy and relationships. And remember that better relationships equals a better life. Dr. Earl Turner is a licensed psychologist and professor in Los Angeles, California. As a media psychologist, Dr. Earl writes a blog called The Race to Good Health and contributes as a mental health media expert for outlets such as Oprah Magazine, The Washington Post, Bustle, and NBC News. His research and clinical interests include access to behavioral health services, cultural competency, behavioral parent training, mental health disparities, and race-related stress. He is a member of the Association of Black Psychologists and the American Psychological Association, where he has over 15 years of leadership experience serving on boards and committees. Lastly, he was recently elected as the president of the Society for Child and Family Policy and Practice for the year 2020. And he is the first African-American male to be elected to this position. Well, thank you again so much for joining us with some of your, I'm sure, very busy time. Excited to be here. And I'd love to open up by having you tell us why you think mental health is important and how accessibility and equity play such a big role in mental health care and outcomes. Yeah, I think, you know, mental health is really important. And it's been something that I have been talking about for a number of years since, you know, I was in graduate school working on my PhD. And part of why I think it's really necessary that we consider our mental health is because that it does impact every aspect of our life. So obviously we think about how it 
impacts our ability to function emotionally and maintain relationships with our family and friends and even in the work environment, but it also has implications for our physical health. And so we know that you know, there is this connection between how we respond psychologically to things in our environment and how stress levels, for example, might also lead us to have increased risk for cardiovascular disease. And so when we talk about the connections between mental health and how it impacts disparities, specifically in communities of color, we know that many individuals from diverse ethnic and racial backgrounds that oftentimes they are less likely to seek out mental health services. Part of that may be due to stigma in those communities, but it also might be a function of inadequate access to services. So not everyone has a therapist or psychologist in their community. And for some people, they also have a stronger preference for working with someone that looks like them. And we know that the representation in terms of diversity in the mental health field is also very limited. What kind of role do you think kind of recognition around mental health in terms of recognizing, okay, this is something that, yes, is normal, but that I can also seek care for to help me cope with properly, to process, to try and improve or mitigate the experience I'm going through, and one, the ability to recognize it as normal, but also something that can and should be be cared for. Mm-hmm. I do think that we need to normalize the importance of seeking out treatment to address those concerns or even services. I think when we talk about mental health, part of the challenge is that for many people, they don't see it as a resource to cope with everyday life stressors or to deal with just sort of stress management or deal with problem solving or deal with issues around managing my time effectively in that we oftentimes think about the treatment aspect or services that are focused primarily on treating a diagnosis or mental illness. And I think for most of us, we don't fit that category in terms of having a diagnosis or symptoms that may warrant having a label. On the other side of that, though, most of us could benefit from talking with someone about challenges that we may be dealing with that may be stressing us out or causing us to have more anxiety or problems navigating relationships. And so I think conversations around normalizing mental health services are really important. And that is one of the reasons why I started a podcast myself about a year ago, because I think if we have these conversations around mental health and around discussions about what are some of the benefits of therapy, that more people may be more open to sort of consider it as an option to maintain some physical aspects of our being, but also how we can think about addressing more clinical or significant like difficulties when it comes to things like anxiety disorders or, or major depression disorder or other types of mental health challenges. It's one thing in terms of accessibility to these sorts of services, and it's mind-blowing how complicated it can be to find a therapist and expensive and just the fact that for some reason mental health seems to be this one area. I think it's 80 to 90% of 
mental health caregivers in the United States don't take insurance. And just, I remember when I myself was looking for a therapist that I had no concept of how complicated this entire system is. And I would love for you to talk a bit about how those issues of accessibility can become cumulative. And it's not just a one time looking for a therapist, that accessibility, but this cumulative process that adds up to an overall different experience over time. Yeah, I mean, you, you touched on a lot of different points. And I think one of the things that I've looked at over the years with my own uh, research is that when we talk about mental health services and the disparities in using those treatments, that oftentimes one of the considerations is the financial cost. We know that for different communities, regardless of your ethnic or racial background, that because of socioeconomic factors and other considerations in terms of sort of what your financial resources may be allocated towards for your family for, let's say, a given month, that cost is going to potentially impact those decisions. And so despite the changes with healthcare reform and that some insurance providers and, and most should at least offer you know, equitable resources to allow someone to seek out both physical and mental health services that most providers don't accept insurance and they do only accept services on a fee schedule that you pay for those services out of pocket. And so for some people, that is a a challenge for them to get care. Obviously, the cost is going to be anywhere from $50 to $200, depending on what state you're in, because there's such variability across the states. That is a factor. But we also know that Despite having insurance, that the research also shows that for people, when insurance does cover them, meaning that costs specifically may not be a heavy consideration, that they are still oftentimes less likely to seek out care. And I think part of that goes into other factors that we talk about when it comes to availability of providers. Despite the field, we still don't have enough mental health providers that are out there that actually can provide services. So that is another challenge when it comes to things around education and training for the field. But we also know that stigma and sort of perceptions about services also prevent a lot of people from getting that care. And so I think those are some of the things that we have to continue to address when it comes to reducing disparities. And then the other thing that I think is really important when it comes to thinking about finding a provider is that when you are making, let's say, phone calls or sending emails to ask about services, it's really important to also ask about options for paying for those services. It's also important that people think about that if you are interested in seeking therapy and you do have concerns about can you afford those services, that you maybe ask those questions of the person that you may be reaching out to see, do they offer you know services on a fee schedule based upon income level, or can they provide you a bill that maybe you can then submit to your insurance company where you may be able to at least get reimbursed some of those you know costs back? What other sorts of questions do you think it's important for people to ask? Yeah, I think a lot of conversations oftentimes come up when we think about therapists working with individuals who are not from their ethnic or racial background. So 
working across the dyad where a client may be interested in, let's say, working with, you know, if they're Black, they may want to work with the Black African-American therapist or if they're Latinx or Latino, they maybe want to work with someone from that particular group, is that it's also appropriate and acceptable to ask your potential therapist what their experience has been like working with someone from your community. And so I think that's a fair question to understand, one, their comfort level with maybe talking about some potential tough issues when it comes to things like coping with experiences of racism, community or in the work environment, or about their cultural competency or cultural sensitivity when it comes to understanding the dynamics of culture and how those things within, let's say, the family system might impact your relationship as well as the treatment of services that they offer you. So I think those are additional questions that you can ask about what has been your experience working with someone who is African-American and what types of treatments have you found to be most helpful from the work that you do? The American Psychological Association has been trying to make certain improvements in education awareness around things such as race, cultural backgrounds, even gender, trans, polyamory, awareness, and kind of training for therapists to work with people in a way that isn't discriminatory. How far have we come in terms of raising awareness around this, but how far do we still have to go in terms of being in a place where there is not only just more representation and access, but even just fair treatment of patients, regardless of background, be it gender, ethnicity, et cetera. Yeah, I agree with the points that you made about APA being able to do work that's focused on addressing the education and training of professionals. And obviously, they're not the only professional organization that deals with practice guidelines. And so we also have to be mindful of the social work field and those that may be in you know, counseling, the American Counseling Association also offer some guidelines around these types of issues. But I think from the perspective as the field of psychology, so I am a, a psychologist, I think that they've put out some recent guidelines within the last three to five years around addressing training and what we do in our profession with working with diverse populations. So a couple of years ago, the multicultural guidelines were just revised. So the newer guidelines were out really focusing on intersectionality and the importance of thinking about not just sort of physically when we look at race or ethnicity as a characteristic, that we also have these other important factors around gender, sexual orientation, as well as age, disability, all of those factors are important to sort of think about. And then more recently, about a year ago, they also produced some guidelines focused on race and ethnicity and psychology. And really talking about what are some of the, again, unique cultural factors that might be important to consider when you're working with different ethnic and racial groups and how you might integrate this information into the treatment that you're doing, but also how as a sort of training aspect that we're also making sure that we're addressing these sort of practice guidelines in addition to some of the research. And I think 
the research area is a continued space where we need to do more and do a better job about how we understand different ethnic and racial groups from the sort of clinical counseling perspective. And that when we're doing the research, that how we study these different racial and ethnic groups also impact how we practice and what are those implications as well. So I think that's an area that we need to continue to explore and more specifically understanding what are some of the sort of within group differences within a group. So if we think about, let's say, Latino populations, for example, that there's a lot of different cultures within this sort of broad community or ethnic group. We need to be able to understand what are some of these unique aspects within each individual and how those might impact some of the treatments that we implement as well. Kind of shifting from the side of the practitioner back to the patient side of things, you earlier mentioned stigma and how that prevents a lot of people from seeking treatment or even kind of acknowledging their own awareness of opportunities or necessities for care. Where do you think the stigma has come from? How do you think it's evolved? And what do you think we can do to try and change it? Yeah, I think obviously different groups may have different thoughts or perceptions about stigma. And so I'm going to focus specifically on just talking about Black people, Black Americans or African-Americans in the United States. And that when we talk about stigma for that group specifically, that historically, one of the factors that has, I think, continued to make it difficult for the Black community to consider treatment is some of the oppression that they've experienced from the research perspective. So if we go back decades ago into how they were sort of misrepresented in different um, psychological or even medical studies Mm -hmm. and how those behaviors has led them to really mistrust the mental health profession. And so I think one of the ways that has been helpful and continues to be helpful to reduce some of that stigma is that we have been able to recruit and get more Black and African-American providers into the field. And so I think for those individuals, oftentimes they feel that they can be more trusting of the mental health professional or even their therapist if their therapist is from their own community. And that's something that I've seen in my own work with trying to like understand some of the factors that might impact treatment use specifically among African-Americans. Then I think the other piece is that we know that microaggressions and these sort of biases that may occur within that client-therapist relationship also impact the work that we do. And so if we are able to make sure that, you know, therapists and counselors and psychologists have a really good self-awareness about how they interact with different ethnic and racial groups is that awareness hopefully also shapes their behavior to make sure that they don't engage in these behaviors, which could be marginalizing to different groups, but also making them not feel comfortable in that therapy space. And so they may, let's say, begin to establish that therapeutic relationship and go into therapy, but because of how the therapist may engage with them, then they may discontinue. So I think we 
need to continue, you know, training, you know, future clinicians and therapists, and even for those that are already in the field to make sure that they continue to get, you know, education and training on a regular basis so they can understand how to engage in and working with different groups that are different from their own and not engaging in these sort of microaggressive behaviors. In the context, not just of mental health care, but kind of on a much broader scale, going off of that same idea of needing to have kind of awareness of the experiences and the cultural influences that have shaped each one of us, how would you describe the importance of perspective? No, yeah, that's very important. And I think one of the things that we've, in a lot of spaces, have been talking about over the last couple of months is really how, you know, for people that may be sort of disconnected in that maybe you don't live in communities that are very diverse, that you may not fully understand their experiences and what they may be going through. And so I think part of uh, addressing and improving that sort of perspective is that you you do your work and that may involve reading a lot of stuff around racism, discrimination, or our biases, and, and then being able to have conversations with people in your own community or ethnic group, as well as those that are different from your own, to really begin to try to hear that other person's perspective. And I think one thing that happens is that when there is some, let's say, disagreement, is that those conversations really get shut down. And so you're not able to really fully try to understand someone else's life experiences. What are some of your favorite kind of ways or tools, recommendations you can give people in terms of how to engage with someone in order to better understand their story and these influences, whether it's questions you like asking people or I guess some actionable advice for listeners to help them practice this on a daily level or on a more consistent level in their own life? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that I often talk about is that it may be helpful to have these conversations one-on-one or even in a small group that is not 10 to 15 people. But I think if you're in a small group that people feel more comfortable and feel less attacked. I think another thing that is beneficial when it comes to understanding and engaging in like perspective taking is that you are an active listener during those conversations. And so that you're not just sitting with them and you're nodding and you're saying, okay, or I hear what you're saying, but that you're also actively reflecting back or repeating what the person says in a way that articulates that you're actually listening as a therapist, for example, sometimes can seem maybe a little bit like, I think, irritating for people in some of our like day-to-day lives, like, why are you repeating things to me? But I think when you're having, let's say, a difficult conversation that people really appreciate when someone can at least try to understand. And then I think the other piece is that when you're having these tough conversations, it's really trying to, for yourself, identify how you can be able to to change your own behaviors or be more open to understanding those types of things. And I think sometimes what we do is try to let, you know, tell other people like, well, this is how you should sort of go about navigating 
this experience, but I think what may be most helpful for people to sort of get a sense that you have an understanding about these, let's say, difficult types of issues around race relations, but that you're also taking some responsibility. And so I think it's really important that you take ownership of, of what you can do to change your own sort of beliefs or thoughts or even your own actions in those situations. I guess if you would have any specific questions, even that you would recommend people, whether it be about mental health in general or understanding somebody else's perspective, any other specific questions? Well, I mean, I think trying to be open-minded and maybe ask open-ended questions are really helpful for people so that way you don't ask questions in a way that's like a yes or no type of response. So questions like, how do you feel about the situation? Or how have you been feeling lately? I think that's one helpful strategy. I think also looking into resources online about these conversations. So the Psychological Association, if you go to apa.org, they have a lot of information specifically around having conversations about races. So you can look up um, that, type it in their website. They offer a lot of tools about how to talk about race and racism. So I think those Mm -hmm. are helpful conversations. In terms of the mental health aspect, I think there are websites like uh, NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI.org. They have a lot of resources around sort of understanding mental health and recognizing things and even having those, you know, conversations with family and friends. And so I oftentimes recommend that. Perfect. Thank you so much. I wanted to shift a bit into speaking on perspective and kind of following that vein wanted to talk a bit about masculinity, the evolution of masculinity, and specifically masculinity through the lens of Black men in the United States and kind of the unique history and cultural factors and societal circumstances that have shaped masculinity for Black men in the United States. Yeah, so I think one of the challenges that we have in society is that for a long time, um, Black men specifically have been viewed in a very negative light in that, one, they're they're angry, that they're dangerous, that they're risky and very sexist. And I think those types of negative messages and biases have impacted a lot of individuals' views about Black men and who they are. And that it also, I think, doesn't give Black men a fair shot to really show the range of their emotions because people are going to sort of view them in this very sort of restricted manner. And so I think one of the things that I really appreciate over the last couple of years is that we've been having more conversations around this and that social media, I think, has been a really useful resource to really change the narrative about Black men and and who they are, and that they are not the sort of dangerous, emotionally charged people, and that they are happy. They have a a range of emotions around talking about their feelings. And I think those are things that, for men in general, that oftentimes they are placed in this box where men don't talk about their emotions and men can't cry. And so I think as society has begun to 
have these conversations and sort of sort of change across the board for different you know ethnic and racial groups around sort of what is masculinities and how do we define that that I think the conversations have also been occurring regarding Black men and specifically sort of their relationships with their families and being involved in parenting and being caretakers and mentoring the next generation, that all of these things have really been beneficial and open up the opportunity for, for Black men specifically to be able to show this side of them that oftentimes society doesn't allow to be shown because of how images are oftentimes controlled by, by the media. And then I think for sports to really get involved in terms of talking about some of these things as well. So both the NFL and the, the NBA have really had players to talk about mental health. And I think that shows a different side of them as men and that they, they are also being able to sort of seek out help and to talk about therapy being okay. And those are conversations that I think are really beginning to teach younger men and boys that they can be vulnerable and they can show different sides of themselves and that they don't have to always sort of walk around and sort of be tough um, as this idea of what masculinity and manhood is. Going back a bit into kind of, I'd love to expand a bit more about kind of the historical context and some of the, the unique circumstances so that people can really understand a bit more of the how and the why things are the way they are today, and then perhaps to also delve a bit more into the role of the media, more as we get into present day, the role of the media in shaping our perception. From the mental health aspect of it and sort of my own awareness of history, I think the way that Black men have been characterized negatively, if we want to go back 400 plus years to when during slavery times, I think a lot of those things have continued to sort of plague society in terms of how we use these negative scripts about Black men as a way to sort of shape the narrative about how they are treated by society. And I think those things have sort of continued to carry on over decades. And obviously, we've seen some shifts and improvements in terms of society but I think that those messages have continued to be sort of articulated, you know, by the dominant society. And again, going back to sort of media representation. So if we talk about things just sort of briefly getting into issues around sort of police brutality, is that if you have a, a black man or, or a boy who's walking down the street with a coat in his hand, for example, that it may be seen as, oh, he has some sort of weapon, whereas if a white person has a gun, then they're less likely to have some repercussions or consequences of that. And we've seen numerous incidents where they're more likely to shoot you know, an unarmed Black person as opposed to a, a white person who has a gun in their hand. So I think those are the, the messages that we have to confront and make sure that as a society that we're able to dismantle these systems that have been really oppressive for hundreds of years, particularly against, you know, Black men and communities of color. And going off of kind of the opportunity and importance of these role model type characters, you mentioned sports, for example, and Don McPherson came to mind, who's a former NFL quarterback who talks a lot about masculinity and 
feminism and is the author of the book, You Throw Like a Girl, The Blind Spot of Masculinity. And the importance of kind of having not only role models in general, but the opportunities of certain people who are in the media, such as athletes or artists, etc. And so I'd love to just have you speak a bit to the importance not only of having those sort of role models and healthy examples to look to, but the importance that the people who are in those roles and do have the opportunity to use their voice for good be sure to take advantage of that opportunity to help others and to use their platform for positive change. Yeah, no, I think that's really important. And so one of the things that we know is that these celebrities and people that are in these different roles play a major voice in in perceptions that people have in communities. And so I think by them having these types of conversations really opens up the doors for people in communities where for a long time they may have been resistant to talk about these types of issues that when you put a name and a face such as a, a famous person to these types of topics, that people begin to talk more about them. And so I think it's really helpful that they are utilizing their platforms to be able to start really important conversations around things like mental health, if you're able to get the help that you need and reach out or even encourage someone else to get some services, that that's really helpful to that person, but also to the larger society, because we know that mental health impacts other aspects of our lives. And so if you think about workforce, for example, that we know that for people that take, you know, quote unquote, mental health days, as a way to sort of release some of the stress that they may be experiencing, that when people are engaging actively in actually addressing their mental health, that they're less likely to have poor work performance or to have a lot of turnover or changing jobs more frequently. So those are important conversations that we need to have. So I think these are really important messages that people in those roles, such as celebrities or athletes, can really play to sort of help you know change the narrative. When you mentioned kind of sick days or mental health days, I think people use that as kind of a casual term, but it really makes me wonder why that's not more of just kind of a legal allocation of an additional number of sick days or of having these mental health days, whether or not you quote unquote need them, everybody needs them, everybody should take them. What if we could live in a world, in a culture where you had this allocation of days on which your one job is to take that time to focus on your mental health, to take a break if you need one, to reflect, to go to therapy or whatnot? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And, And I think one way, although this may sound strange, but I think one way to also think about is that. We have vacation days, which could be utilized in any sort of yeah. way, but not everybody gets those days. So going back to your point about making sure that places of employment have some consideration for mental health is mm-hmm. that those things are necessary to sort of restore yourself. And for some people, that may be that you it's not just about taking like a, a day to sort of de-stress, but maybe you actively need to like go to, let's say, see your therapist or take an appointment for a doctor's visit or something. 
that that day or time can also be utilized for those types of things. Maybe we need to rethink about that. And the American Psychological Association has an initiative that they started years ago that really focused on highlighting organizations that were engaging in and demonstrating a psychologically healthy workplace. And so they would like give some recognition to these companies that demonstrated making sure that they're, they were supporting, you know, mental health, but also an overall sort of mentally well workforce. And so I think that's a consideration that many companies really need to consider about making sure that their environment organizations are really set up in a way that fosters recognizing the the importance of, of health and well-being. And there's such an immense amount of power and relief in the simple fact of knowing you can take a break if you need one, for example. And that's unfortunately a luxury a lot of people don't have if we could somehow change the system and allow people that and not just have to pretend you're physically sick or take these vacation days, but also using language in proper terms for naming things so that speaking about mental health then becomes more normalized when you tell somebody you'll be taking a mental health day, it then opens a whole other conversation versus saying you have an event or something else. And there's just so much about the way that language shapes our interpretations and experiences. I agree with what you're saying, and I don't have sort of much to add to that, but I do think, like, when we talk about mental health specifically, that when we talk about people that have a label or a diagnosis, is that we do need to be mindful of how we characterize those people. And so, like, mental health diagnosis or labels are not adjectives to describe people. And so I think we utilize things in a way that I don't know if it's intended to be like derogatory or offensive, but when we use things like, oh, that person is crazy, like that can mean so many different things or saying people are schizophrenic or, or bipolar or whatever, all of that terminology means something to people. And so I think that we need to sort of be mindful of that when we're utilizing those terms in our conversations as well. Yeah, I was just reading a bit particularly or the other day specifically about how when they're used in a casual sense to, for example, for people with developmental disabilities, I think we finally moved past the point where people would use the word retarded and terms like that. But even now, you know, people will casually use the terms like she's being bipolar or, oh, that's so OCD or ADHD, which these are really small things that you wouldn't think twice about, but do almost take away from the real meaning of the terms and also kind of create unnecessary labels. And I think there's certain advantages and disadvantages to openly being able to use terms, overusing terms, and also being sure not to create self-fulfilling prophecies for people who actually do have those conditions by, as you said, using it as an adjective to describe their identity. As we kind of Near the end of our interview, I wanted to ask you a bit about the importance of knowing and owning your own story and whether that is your mental health journey or the cultural influences or historical context that has shaped you. 
what have you learned from your personal experience and from your patients? And how can you describe that really deep importance of knowing and owning your own story? Yeah, for me, in terms of why this is, these types of conversations are important and why I got into the field is that I really, as a college student, got into understanding people's experiences with mental health and specifically in the Black community where we weren't having these conversations. And for me, at the time, I really wanted to sort of find a way that I could be able to be helpful in terms of shifting the narrative, changing the conversation, and also making people feel more comfortable about seeking out services, is that I think having that sort of understanding and that personal connection provides an opportunity for you to sort of be an advocate or to engage in some work that can be really meaningful to not only yourself, but also your community or even society. And so for me, one of the reasons that I got into this work is just knowing that we know mental health can be preventable or mental illness can be addressed and treated. But if we're not seeking out the help or having conversations to encourage people to seek out the help, then they're only going to experience more difficulties in life, not only with just the mental health problem, but, but also with other sort of mental health aspects that may be impacted by that in terms of family work and in such relationships. And so that is really why I got into doing this work because I can do some psychoeducation and talk about mental health with the public, but I can also do research to better understand these barriers and be able to utilize that information to impact policy change. And so I think that's a huge aspect for me, which has really been able to talk with political leaders and people that make decisions about policy, about the disparities that exist related to mental health and how they can play a really important role in making sure that adequate funding is put into different states or schools or systems to make sure that we address some of these aspects. And so that is the piece for me in terms of having that sort of personal connection provides that story that allows you to engage in doing some additional work to change things for people in the future. Yeah, I love that part about how you found it as a way to connect with other people and open this conversation. And I always find that a lot of times, just because people aren't having a certain conversation doesn't mean they don't want to. And it sometimes just takes somebody to open the floor and to feel comfortable. And as soon as somebody kind of exudes that comfort in that space, in that topic, it just invites people to open up in a way that whether they knew it or not, they've been waiting to. And so seeing discussions of mental health, of anything related to that, being an opportunity to connect deeper with people rather than if it continues to be treated as something stigmatized, it kind of puts up barriers and it cuts people off from one another. But if we could instead use it as a platform for connection with others, I think that's a really beautiful concept. What would you say your hope is through your work for both helping people understand the disparities and factors of accessibility, of equity, of racism and other discrimination in the mental health 
care system and also for people who want to help make a change. Yeah, I think there are a couple of things that I hope for. One is that these conversations that we've been having around racism, injustice, oppression, that sparks all of us to change some of our behaviors. And part of that behavior change may be that you're just no longer silent in letting you know things go without communicating that something needs to be done or speaking up about injustice. And I think that silence doesn't always have to be that you are yourself in an or engaging in these sorts of oppressive behaviors, but maybe you're not speaking out to bring it up for others who may not even recognize that they're engaging in these types of actions. So I think that's one hope is that these conversations will lead other people to not be silent when they witness these types of you know injustices that may occur, whether it's in society in general or within these healthcare or mental health care systems. My other hope is that we can continue to address some issues around education and training within the field. And I think part of that is making sure that we put more money and funding into uh, recruitment and retention of students of color. And this has to start from, from even maybe high school into college to talk about the diversification of the field, because we know that regardless of whether it's social work or psychologists to sort of single out those two professions, that there isn't much diversity and that only about, depending on the field, and I'll speak you know, just on psychology, only about 5%, 4 to 5% of psychologists are from a different ethnic and racial background. And so you can see that there's a huge you know, you know, room for us to be able to improve in that. And so I think that's another level that needs to be addressed in terms of recruitment and retention. And then the final part is, I think, for those that are already in the field is that we do a much better job in terms of advocating for what's required in terms of education and training. So the requirements related to like diversity, for example, diversity courses in graduate education. Students can pass and graduate from these programs with maybe having anywhere from like one to two classes that focus on diversity. And I think that's inadequate you know, for people to get the skills that they need. And obviously there's a lot to learn once you finish. And so there's this continuing education that occurs but I think we also need to be more mindful about these sort of institutions and how that what people learn in those environments and in, in, in those institutions carry over into what they do into the profession. And so we, we need to do a much better job um, about making sure that students are getting more training when it comes to understanding these issues. And specifically, if we talk about impacts of, of racism and, and discrimination, and how do those conversations come up in terms of training and education? I think that part about how this needs to be something more clearly and formally addressed in institutions, in universities, and whatnot is so important because if this is something that is systemic, that is institutionalized issues of racism, of accessibility, of discrimination how can we expect it to improve, let alone go away, if we are not providing a solution, some sort of antidote on an institutional asystemic scale? There's just no way that leaving that up to people to figure out on their own for 
having inconsistent resources and and information for people to navigate through the understanding of these deeply pervasive and often subconscious issues can get us anywhere if it's not something that is kind of, again, that sort of antidote injected on the same level systemically that the issue itself lies. The level of the issue itself is perpetuated. And that other part kind of that you mentioned that doing nothing in a way, I think people think of passivity as neutrality. Passivity perpetuates this system, whether we realize it or not. And so I think that's something that through all the current events that are happening lately, people are finally realizing that that isn't enough and and recognizing that passivity actually actively perpetuates this system. And so it really takes something more on a systemic level, but also on an individual level from all of us. So thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing some of your personal experiences and insights, as well as kind of knowledge in general on this topic and helping some of us to synthesize these influences and the importance and issues at hand in terms of accessibility in mental health care and some of the the issues specifically for Black people in the United States. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much to each and every one of you for tuning in to listen to our show. If you like what you learned and you know someone who might also like listening, please do share this podcast. You can also feel free to reach out to us anytime if you'd like to submit questions, requests for experts to have on the show, or if you'd like to share your positive feedback or constructive criticism. We'd love to hear what you think. It's the only way we can learn and grow along with you. Be sure to check out our website, follow us on Instagram at bbxx.world, and subscribe to the Book Club newsletter where we send out even more resources to help you dive even deeper to the topics that we bring to you on the show. Once again, we encourage you to take what we discuss on this show and apply it in your everyday life. Because remember, better relationships equals better life.